Welcome to the Emergency Management Podcast, a show about planning for, responding to, and recovering from emergencies. I'm Stuart Walker, and this is the place where we talk to emergency management professionals and learn from them so that we can make a positive impact on the safety of our community. Today's guest is Acting Deputy Chief Officer Ken Brown from the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, located in Victoria, Australia. You'll likely relate to my guest today. He's built a career from the ground up. In 2016, Ken was awarded an Australian Fire Service Medal. When Ken received the award, one of his colleagues wrote, Ken is a fine example of everything a firefighter should be, an officer should be, and what an executive officer should be. In this episode, we talk to Ken about his experience of working in emergency management, and he offers some tangible tips for mentoring incident management personnel maintaining business continuity during emergencies and meeting the needs of political leaders during an incident. Ken Brown, welcome to the Emergency Management Podcast. Thank you, Stuart, and good afternoon. Ken, you've been an operational firefighter for 35 years. You started in 1983. What led you to become a firefighter? I was actually, I got my wife to thank for that. I was working at Kodak in Coburg at the time and um, she rang me up and she said, uh, they're advertising for firefighters in the MFB. And I said, well, you know, I've got a great job at Kodak. Why would I leave Kodak? She goes, well, you've always said you want to be a firefighter. Why don't you ever go? And um, I did. And my dad's best mate um, was a retired assistant chief fire officer. And uh, I'm actually named after him. And so I, I had a crack and got in and haven't regretted a day. And I guess with, with Kodak going out of business, you're probably very glad you made that choice. I was very lucky. I got my wife to thank for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, make sure you play this to her so she hears that. Mm. You've had an amazing career in the emergency services. What are your early memories then of being a firefighter? I think it's, um, you know, the challenges you face that you come into work and you never know what you're going to face. Uh, I've worked with some brilliant people across many organisations, both CFA and MFB, and um, just the variety of calls that you go to and the complexities of some of those and just being able to adapt and what, you know, I say is, you know, we make sense out of nonsense we bring calm to chaos and we make order from disorder. So I really love that aspect of it. And I guess after 35 years in the fire service, what are you most proud of? It's about the influence you have on, on other firefighters. Um, I would take on mentoring really seriously and every job opportunity I have, I use as a job to mentor other people and not just focus on what I'm trying to achieve from the fire but also sharing those experiences because it's, it's like a live exercise and you don't get better learning than at a live exercise and people should take time, no matter how bad the incident is, to make sure you bring others along on the journey because that's where you learn your most. And what are some of the ways then that people can bring others along, do you think? It's it's understanding that the people around you are, are probably a lot better than what you think they are yeah. and they just need an opportunity. So if you, if you can take the responsibility on, a, say, as the instant controller, but you allow your team to work with you without the pressures of being the instant controller, mm-hmm. so you delegate responsibilities to them and let them challenge themselves in new roles but have that support that you're going to take responsibility for everything they do. They actually grow and, and evolve and you can see when the job's finished how much they actually get out of it. Yeah, And it's a hugely challenging environment so it probably is a wonderful learning environment for people to work in. Absolutely and you just don't 
ref- oh, you don't contain it to just your organisation. So mm. when we look at how EMTs run and that across the multiple um, organisations within the sector, you can actually help and develop those people in the other um, sector partners, such as FICPOL and that, that don't operate in that emergency management space a lot. And you can actually encourage them and, and bring them along. I can remember the St Kilda Road crane fire. Mm. We had uh, a senior police member come along and I said to him, look, you know, we've we've got to exit out of this and get this back to business as usual. And that's the, the beauty about having effective handover strategies. So we put a handover strategy in place and, and uh, the, police, uh, the police inspector said to me, he goes, how long have you been doing this sort of stuff? And I said, well, a long time. And he said, it's, it's very good, a very effective way of doing stuff. Yeah. And so he learned a lot from that and hopefully he'll take that on to the next job that he has and that's that's sharing the experience yeah and certainly with the i guess the all agencies approach in recent years we really have found a lot of that cross-pollination of uh, of information has been fantastic yeah absolutely like um i've got a lot to to thank for people um i was i've been a regional controller now for i think this would be my ninth summer coming up and i worked under people like alan ellis out at in district 14 who are absolutely fantastic so working across those multiple agencies and you know multiple uh, regions you actually understand how much talent they are sitting in the emergency management sector and that helps you enormously in your own personal growth and development And looking back over the past 35 years, is, is there anyone who's particularly influenced your career? Uh, that's I've, So many, and it's surprisingly because everyone expects you to say a chief officer or somebody like that. Mm. But I had some great um, senior firefighters in my younger days mm. and some, some really good officers over the time. And it's those people, I think in the first six years of the job, had the greatest influence on me about seeing how um, the job works and how development, and then you just expand on that. But um, I had some really good uh, senior firemen in the days. The late John McGrath at Brunswick was really good. I had uh, what we used to call the senior man, which you don't call nowadays, but in those days we had the senior man was Peter Shanahan, and, and that we had really good firefighters used to take you under your wing. Yeah. And teach you your job, and then you you looked at officers, and um, I had a senior station officer called an SO one in those days was Ron Wyatt. Mm-hmm. He taught me a lot about um, understanding how fire behaves, and also understanding the importance of your team, and you know trusting them and and backing them. So I've had some really good influences over the time. And your career now has evolved very much into the major emergency management sphere. You're a level three incident controller. You're a level three incident controller for maritime operations. And also, as you mentioned before, a regional controller. What is it about managing major emergencies that really interests you? Very early in my career, I got an opportunity to do an emergency management coordination centre course and that was in the very early days of AIMS and and getting people to work in that space and I really enjoyed working in that environment. So I I pursued my operational side to to try and improve myself at every job and learn how, you know, I can improve myself. So I I reached out into AMSA um, and got the opportunity to do a a level three controllers course. And AMSA is the Australian Maritime, Maritime Safety Authority. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. So 
just to go back, when I got the opportunity to be a regional controller when we first um, dipped the toe into that, um, you know, and I mentioned Alan Ellis before, so I got my interest up in that. So I thought, well, this is a really good place to be in because it just the growth that you get in, in understanding management of, of major incidents and complex incidents. So then I reached out to uh, – I ran the marine project for the MFB when we were getting um, fireboats and that. So I had contacts in with the Australian Maritime Safety Authority and I got an opportunity to do a Level 3 controllers course. And um, I remember the course I was on, um, we had a CFA Ops Officer on there as well, as Sean from here yep. was on the same course I was on. Um, so it was a really – challenging but a really good course because it was, wasn't about fire. Um, so I, I, I went on to that and then AMSA contacted me again and they had advanced the Level 3 controllers course to be almost like a state response controllers course mm-hmm. and they asked me would I come back and do it, not for any further qualification but just to get a feel for the course and I think it's one of the best courses I've done as far as preparing you for complex major emergencies um, and dealing with politicians, communities. It was a really high-level course. And I I think I remember the the course that was conducted this year, at least the seminar that was conducted this year, was was a hugely complex one with major evacuations needing to occur, different boats coming ashore, evacuating people. It was a... It was a very, very difficult scenario that was presented. Yeah, well, um, maritime emergencies are really complex. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I don't know how we, we would handle a, a significant maritime incident. And I know down here at uh, Rosebud, you're probably going to be involved in it one way or the other with Western yeah. Port and Port Phillip Bay. In 2017, you were the incident controller for the Coolaroo Recycling Plant fire. The fire burnt for, for approximately 11 days. Can you describe the fire and what occurred? Yeah, well, uh, either fortunately or unfortunately, I was the SAC for, for that week, um, which is the State Agency Commander for the MFB. And um, the fire started off and it escalated um, pretty quickly to what we call a fifth alarm, mm. um, which activates a deputy chief um, to go. Uh, so I spoke to the Northern District Deputy Chief and said uh, that I'd go as I was the sack, and he was quite happy to, for me to go. Uh, when we got out there, I knew uh, it was going to be a long-duration, challenging fire and that it escalate to a Class 1 emergency. I was very fortunate that I had a good group of um, officers come to that fire, and uh, one of my Deputy Incident Controllers was actually a Regional Controller as well. So the first thing I said to Trent Curtin at the time is, Trent, you're going to go in as the RC um, and state liaison for me because being a regional controller, I know how important it is to get that information. So that was one of the um, successes. We've never done that before at a fire is to have that strong liaison back in through the regional controller. It just meant the, the information that went through the region and up to the state was timely, it was accurate, and it didn't leave anyone guessing. So that was one of the successes. We also, I had, uh, yeah, so um, I had uh, Deputy Incident Control for Operations was Mick Swift. Um, I also had a really good team in planning. We had an executive officer there to take minutes and all that. It was really good. And then uh, Dave Maxwell, the ops officer from Craigieburn, turned up 
because it was a mutual aid area. Mm. So it was part of the normal response. And so it was really good to integrate, um, dive into the I- IMT yeah. rather because than just... Because effectively this call happened right virtually on the border of CFA and yeah. on MFB. Yeah. Mm. So it's part of it. Part of its initial response is Craigieburn, Greenvale and Summerton mm. Broadmeadows go into there primarily. And with Dave there, it gave me a really good opportunity because I'm a great believer in unified command. So I said to Dave, well, you're not going to be a liaison. I said, you're going to be embedded into the team. And especially when we went to uh, compressed airfoam systems, it gave me an opportunity to really put Dave Maxwell in a strategic operational role because of his understanding of CFA processes with the compressed AFM system. So the success for me was having a really good, strong command team. So knowing that this was going to be declared a Class 1 emergency, we really needed a strong EMT and IMT out there. So we asked for the SES uh, control unit to come out, which we set up right next door to the MFB control unit. So we had the IMT running in the uh, MFB control unit and then the EMT set up in the SES control unit, which was really successful for us at the time because we could work at those units. Now, in a complex emergency like that, your time is very limited as the incident controller. So you need to put a lot of faith in your team to, to make decisions. So what I am is I'm very disciplined in my time. So I try to run things on the hour. So it'll be an IMT, say, at 10 o'clock, mm-hmm. EMT at 10.30, and then the media in between all those. So the deputy incident controller knows that if I'm not there for an IMT and EMT, they just run, okay? So they've got to know exactly what you know right throughout the whole incident. Now, if you ask me where the hoses were or anything like that, I'm saying I've got no idea because I've got an ops officer, I've got a deputy incident controller all running that. Mm-hmm. All I need to do is set the strategic direction. And in those first few hours, the um, strategic direction was to stop the fire advancing south onto a warehouse, the engineering warehouse, and easterly to a recycled timber. Now, we managed to achieve those and stop the spread in there, which was uh, amazing considering that was quite a strong north north wind blowing and uh, it was fueling a lot of heat and smoke and even embers out of there, so... That was really good. What I realised also too is that this was going to affect the businesses around there, not only the community because we had the the atmospheric monitoring and the particulate monitoring all getting set up, but I also knew it was going to impact significantly on business. And one thing you learn as a regional controller and plus my time spending so much time with CFA is that community connectivity. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I brought uh, an acting commander on Andrew Barrett and I asked him to take over. Your role is only to manage business continuity. So that was really successful because he went and engaged with all the business while the fire was still a very active fire and was able to get an appreciation of of what the business needs were around that area. So that was really helpful. And it is so important to, to engage businesses. I remember working up at the Harrietville fire back in 2012, and again, it was okay. We were going to cut the major road to Mount Hotham because the fire was going to burn on that road. But to make sure that uh, that the people at Mount Hotham could keep going about their daily work, their daily business, freight could get where it had to get to, it was so important to manage business continuity. And probably in this, in this day and age in emergency management, 
putting that front and said it is important to people. Absolutely, and as as an incident controller, the fire or the emergency is one part of it, but the major part is is what I call, and people don't not like me saying it too much, is event management. Okay, so we manage the event, right, and the the, the consequences and the risk of the incident is really crucial. Mm. So the risk of this fire was. Well, the fire was very active, but the risk was for the community, mm. critical infrastructure, such so uh, road and rail. The business were right at the forefront. We had uh, the migrant centre, yeah. I'll say the mi- migrant centre. So I reached in um, that we've got a commander who's got really relationships into corrections mm. and that. So I, I accessed in Guy McCory and um, we got him to work in with his contacts in with the uh, migrant centre and that to make sure that they were getting... Manage. So it's about looking around outside of the immediate incident and looking what your impacts on those businesses are, what you need to manage. So we, we went down, sent uh, atmospheric monitoring down to the railway station. Mm-hmm. Now, we determined it at one stage that we shouldn't let the, the trains stop there, but the trains were okay to pass through. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was a discussion about whether we just say, right, I bypass uh, the up, I think it was upfield train line, mm-hmm. uh, the train station just go through. It's safe to, to go through until we could get time to make sure that that was. So those are all the considerations you do in consequence management. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I appointed another assistant chief to manage the risk and consequences. So we had a deputy chief, Greg Leach, in at the State Control Centre writing the risk and consequence plans for me, mm. but he was liaising with Peter Thomas, who was the risk and consequence person for there. So when you when you add up everything that an incident controller has got to do, you really don't have a lot of time. So it's about managing all the support you can get. But I had, a, you know, a large list of not only firefighters but command staff there helping me manage that incident, and that was a success. And it sounds like you were able to very quickly surround yourself with people who were experts in particular areas. Yeah, and and I think it's the training that we do both in MFB and CFA. I think we at times underestimate how good our training actually is mm. because we can adapt to different roles even though um, we may not have ever done that role before, but our command and control um, and our training processes allow us to adapt and that's one thing we do really well is adapt to emergencies. Yeah. I remember seeing you on the television being interviewed about this fire. Standing next to you was, uh, I think it was the Minister for Emergency Services. Yes, Mr Molino. Yeah. Mr Molino. How important is it for emergency or for incident controls to consider the political ramifications of fires? Look, it's, it's really important because um, – the minister's the one that gets the questions and the premier as well, mm-hmm. okay, and they need to have a comfort that the incident's being managed and all the risk and consequences are being managed. So whilst the engagement is at state level, I I was on the phone to Craig Lapsley, to my acting chief at the time, Paul Stacchino, um, briefing them up so they could brief up to the minister and to the premier that we were actually – we knew what we were doing and, and we were effectively managing the risks and consequences. Then you know at some stage that the uh, minister's coming out, so um, we had the minister one day and then the premier the next day. So you, you've got to be able to understand what they need from the incident. They need a, co- a level of confidence that, that you're taking care of the community, mm-hmm. you're taking care of the business, and you're making sure that, that everything's about recovery. And... 
we've got to make sure that we push recovery into response as quick as we can. So having that business continuity and having all those linkages back in, uh, I think it gave the minister a level of comfort. So mm. it, when he comes out, he or she, the minister, whoever the minister is, the briefing is really important Okay, because um, they have information that they need. They don't want war and peace. Mm-hmm. They just want to understand what you're doing, what the risks are, and what you're going to do to try and keep the community safe. So we had a very short briefing session with him, uh, made sure he he knew what was going on so that he could talk from informed position. And it was, uh, and you've got to be standing there ready because as soon as a question comes to you that he can't answer, he's going to deflect straight to the incident controller. So you've got to make sure that you don't embarrass or say anything probably you shouldn't say while the minister's standing next to you. So it's not stressful, but you just got to be think smart about how you're doing. And I think more and more it's interesting that the, the, the political ramifications of managing emergencies is such an important consideration. We've had quite small fires occur, which might have seemingly impacted perhaps even on a, just on a railway line, but very quickly this becomes a, a political event or of political interest and so instant controls at all levels probably need to be ready to to answer such questions yeah and they need as an instant control you're right the small ones are the ones that can catch you out mm. i remember back when i was on shift as a district commander someone had set fire to a bunch of old mattresses under uh, on a train line mm. it actually burned out the singling systems uh, yeah. and um i had a very good officer at the time ron miller and he called me up and he said look you know, you might want to come down and have a look at this one. So I come down and have a look, and then we realised that it was going to shut down the line mm. for the morning peak. So the notifications went up very early to the transport minister. Mm. So they could be really brief because once the, the media start ringing you, if you haven't got the answers, it doesn't look good. Mm. So it was a it was a deliberate act of, of vandalism, but it impacted on the line. So the minister had all the information, public transport had a, a good awareness and understanding of what the incident was, got somebody down there pretty quick. They put buses in place. So the consequence of that was managed effectively because someone took the time to understand what the risk and consequence of the incident and just didn't look at it as a small fire. Mm. So it's the little ones that can catch you out. Yeah, that's good advice, I think. Yeah. Mm. So the thing is, I, I keep saying to all, all my firefighters, I say, get on the phone, ring, and just tell us what's going on. Mm. It's not about us watching or, or checking up on you. It's about us supporting you. And if you can support the guys and girls in the field, you get a really good outcome. And you look at the smallest thing, if you if you don't put your consequence hat on, you're not doing yourself uh, a service. I, I can think back to, to one incident where a commander went on to just a, a, a pane of glass hanging out of a window mm. in, in the city building. So it was a high-angle rescue Job, even though it wasn't a rescue, but mm. to, to get the roping people up to secure the window. Now, he had enough thought that that's going to shut the tram line down. So he worked with um, Yarra Trams and that to come up with a, a plan and police about how they could get certain parts of the road open, how, you know, they may be able to terminate a tram here and then start another tram there. Mm. But they worked on that whilst the the incident was running, and I know back in my early days, you'd just shut down the place and you say, go away, we'll tell you when we're finished. Yeah. The so, community won't put up with that anymore, no, will they? People won't put and they, no. they shouldn't either. No. And so coming back to the cooler reef fire, yeah. one of the big challenges of managing the, the, the impact on the community was managing smoke yes. and, and, and 
the smoke from the fire. And this was one of the first times that, that a lot of the air monitoring protocols had been put into place. So what were the challenges of getting these air monitoring protocols in place? Yeah, um, look, it's it's a really interesting one because we responded our hazmat technicians and our scientific officers early into that job. So we knew that we had to manage that. Um, when I was driving to the fire, I could see the particulate in the air. It was pretty thick in those stages and it was blown all the way into town. So we knew we had a significant issue there because all all community, well, a lot of community was calling in the radio station. So we're sitting down there and having the remote monitors and, and all that was really helpful because we could actually track the carbon monoxide or, or areas. So we identified, I think it was 120 houses that um, were in the risk area. So a uh, discussion was made with the regional controller and uh, the police SES and uh, DHHS to council that we would issue a voluntary evacuation for those areas, which I think was a really good idea at the time. So we were able to set the monitors up on that area in the perimeter and remotely monitor that area and keep an eye on it. Now, we knew that the, the wind would shift. So it was about getting accurate forecasting to know where the next impacted area was so that we could do some monitoring to see if that change so having the area raised set up on the fringe of that area you could watch any peaks or Mm. rises in that then we um because the first 24 hours we're responsible for monitoring that after that it's epa Mm. but we're also responsible for the duration of the incident to monitor our firefighters welfare so it's a combination of those two things so um, it was the first time that we'd implement the smoke protocols from Hazelwood, so it was a good learning for all of us. And I think, um, you know, we we got it mostly right and we set up um, business meetings with the, with the council uh, at, I think it was 10 o'clock each day, and then we had the community meetings in the afternoon so they didn't coincide so people would go to either one. So it was about giving them the accurate information as much as we can, plus in our EMTs it was a really high focus on the EMTs about how it was impacting the community. Can I ask who was involved in the EMT? I'd imagine it would have been a, a, a cast of many. Yeah. Well, we had a um, really good team. Um, we had a PIO from CFA, Tracy Parkhill. Mm. We had DHHS, Victoria Police. We had Melbourne Water. We had... Uh, the water, I think it was um, City West Water or one of the water authorities there. Um, we had EPA, we had WorkSafe. Uh, we might have even had somebody from the transport companies as well in there. But we had SES were there, CFA were there. So we had everyone we needed there. Mm. Now, there was a discussion, and I knew the pressure would come on about transferring control of the incident, but having that relationship at the Deputy Incident Controller for that regional control liaison, mm. I think it gave the region and the state confidence that we were managing the incident. So I briefed the Commissioner at, at the time, my Chief, and said, look, I don't want to transfer this at the moment. So this was transferring to EPA? Or no, no, transferring no. control to an ICC. Oh, to an ICC, sorry. 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 Yep. Yeah, yeah. So... I knew that there'd be pressure coming on. Mm-hmm. Um, we had our um, ICC 
running as a district control centre. Mm. So we had some staff there. But what I've said to the commissioner and my chief at the time, I said, to duplicate what we've got out here would actually put extra burden on, on the emergency management sector mm. and we would lose what we've got. Because it was a, a static incident, we were able to keep everyone in the same location. Mm-hmm. We're able to go to our community meetings twice a day, do all our briefings with the media and all that. We could not have achieved that at an ICC. But we knew at some stage we were going to transfer. So I think it was something like four or five days later we transferred control to the ICC. Now, that, was, that decision to transfer at that stage was based on uh, making sure that we could get the business continuity going. So on on the Sunday morning, I went out and met with the incident controller at the time and I said, uh, I'm going to recommend that we transfer control at 10 a.m. on the Monday. That gave us 24 hours to plan. And I said, the reason about it is because we had the whole road shut down. So I said, if we can get the west side of the street open up to business and corral it down to just that incident, because we still had an active fire running, we will actually get the business back operating as quick as we can into the, most of the areas and we won't wear out our welcome for a start but we can actually start to get it to recovery a lot quicker. So that was agreed and um, I think we transferred on the Monday at about 10.30, so only half an hour late but that was based on you know the conversation and we know in regions mm-hmm. as a regional controller you've got to have a conversation with the field instant controller with the ICC instant controller and the three of you get together and you only affect transfer when all three are happy so there was a couple of questions that were asked we got those sorted out and then the transfer happened so that was good any challenges then when you did transfer anything you'd do differently next time um, the challenge was that because we hadn't transferred a fire into an ICC and MFB before and that was where does operation sit, okay? So we had an operation cell still running out at, um, at Coolaroo, but we had an operation cell in the ICC. So what we learned from that is we wouldn't do that again, okay? We keep the divisional command but just let it run and report up to the operations. Mm. You might put in a deputy operations officer out there to help, but the line's got to go back. Once you transfer, you can't hang on to those parts. So that was probably the learning out of that was is to follow what we know we can do is is set up the division and just run the division how a division should run. So, so looking back on, on your career as a as someone who's worked in emergency management for a long time, what advice would you give to incident controllers? Back yourself because your training is really good. Don't be frightened of your decision because the the worst decision you'll make is a decision that you hesitate. Rely on your training because your training is really good, and don't be frightened to. Um, share the experience with as many good people as you can because on your own you can't do it you'll never achieve an incident um, management level unless you you have good people around you so let them let them make the decisions back them support them and and mentor them through it because we've all have different level of experiences and just allow the team to to help you you need them more than they need you 
Ken, thank you very much for giving up your time today to come and speak on the Emergency Management Podcast. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks, Stuart. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the show this week. That wraps up Episode 10. If you'd like to get in contact with us, please go to emergencymanagementpodcast.com. I'm Stuart Walker, and you've been listening to the Emergency Management Podcast. Bye for now.